0: Our last scripture reading comes from Mark 15 as well, towards the end of the chapter, starting in verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. Holy Spirit, help us, help me, but help us to see Jesus, the Son of God, hanging on the cross as our savior, as our crucified king. Would you open our eyes to see wondrous things in your word? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Here at the end of Mark 15, we find Jesus in the depths of despair in a bottomless pit of agony. This is literally Jesus' darkest hour. the sun is blotted out and he is left to die alone in the dark. And at this moment, Jesus cries out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's close to death. He's laboring for every breath. And he asks God, where are you? What's happening to me? Why aren't you delivering me? And as we read at the beginning of the service, Jesus' words here aren't random. He intentionally took them from Psalm 22. As he's dying, Jesus thinks of an old, old worship song, and he shouts it out as loud as he can. This isn't a detached cerebral quotation of a Bible verse. This is sorrowful worship bursting from Jesus' deepest being. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, the church has come to call this line, these last words of Jesus, his cry of dereliction. Dereliction means a state of being abandoned and ruined. It's a shameful place of failure, leaving someone ruined and alone. Why does Jesus say it? What's happening here? Well, I think if we have the courage to look at the cross, to look Jesus in the face, if we have the courage to hear and to feel the agony of this cry, it teaches us four things. It teaches us that Jesus is the answer. It teaches us that Jesus is like us. It teaches us that in one way, one very important way, Jesus is not like us, and it teaches us that Jesus is our only hope. First, in crying out this cry of dereliction, Jesus is showing that he is the answer to what is arguably life's most difficult question, all of Psalm 22 is printed in your bulletin there. And if you take the time to read Psalm 22, you might get emotional whiplash. And right? if you read the Psalm, you'll notice that it alternates back and forth between descriptions of deepest despair and highest hope. And so it starts, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But in you, our ancestors trusted and you delivered them. But I am a worm and not a man scorned, despised, and mocked, but you have been with me from birth. You have always been my God, but I'm surrounded by monsters. I'm poured out like water. You have laid me low in the dust of death, and yet I'm still hoping against hope for you to save me. The psalm is such a mix of highs and lows that some people have suggested that it might have originally been two separate songs that were shuffled together, but we know that's not true. What's really going on here is that this is one song written by someone who is well acquainted with one of the great tensions of life. He's well acquainted with life's most difficult question. It's a question that we sometimes think about in an abstract philosophical sense, But more often, we experience it in an up-close and personal, painful way. And the question is this. How is it that life is made up of moments of extreme pain, shame, sadness, fear, anger, loneliness, loss, and moments of desire and hope? And usually, those moments come back to back to back or even overlap in our daily lives. In philosophy, this question is called the problem of pain or the problem of evil. If a good God is reigning over all things, why does it seem like so much bad is running rampant in the world? But the personal, practical, daily life question is much more pressing. How is it that last week in the span of just a few days, we saw a tragic, terribly evil school shooting and then a bunch of men from this church left and went on a men's retreat in the mountains and had fun and were encouraged. When you say it side by side by that, it's almost unsettling, right? It's confusing. It's upsetting, right? How is it that a few weeks ago, as Brittany and I were experiencing the great joy of two little sons that were so full of life, we got the news of a miscarriage, right? A wedding and a funeral, hope and sorrow overlapping and intermingling in our daily lives. What do we do with that? How do we understand that? God, I know that you're good, and I know that you're in control. The only problem is I'm not sure that I believe that you're good or that you're in control. God, you've helped me in the past, and theoretically, I believe that you'll help me in the future, but right now, it feels like you're not helping me. You're hurting me. I'm surrounded by enemies and you're nowhere to be found. I'm poured out like water and you won't quench my thirst. I'm dying here, God, alone, hurting, falling apart. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the defining question of the human experience and it's the question that reverberates through each one of our lives every day. In the midst of so much suffering, can we really believe in a good God? A God who is close to us and who cares about us. And I think that when Jesus, hanging on the cross, cries out the opening verse of this confusing, life encompassing psalm, part of what he's doing is saying, Look here, this is the answer. I am the answer. When I was in college, I was just weird enough that I went to multiple debates about the problem of evil, right? And so you'd go into this auditorium and there'd be two guys up on stage behind podiums and they'd be on different sides of this debate and they would lob for like an hour and a half, they would just lob philosophical arguments back and forth at each other, trying to prove their own thesis and disprove the other person's thesis. And you know what all of those debates had in common? When they were over and we walked out of that auditorium, no one was satisfied. Christian, non-Christian, pastor, professor, philosopher, atheist, believer, everyone walked into that auditorium with questions about God and suffering, and they walked out with questions about God and suffering. So hear this loud and clear. God's full and final answer to the sorrow in the world and the sorrow in your life was not to stand on an eight, on a stage and lob philosophical arguments at you it was to come into the world as a human being and to die on a cross. When we have questions about suffering more than that, when we're crushed by suffering and we're crying out, God says, come, cry out to me, shout at me, tell me your sorrow, tell me your anger, I can take it, I want to hear it. Jesus didn't come to explain the answer to us, he came to embody the answer to us. In suffering, we don't need more philosophizing, we need friendship. And Christianity is the only worldview that says the answer to the problem of evil isn't primarily philosophy or a rational argument, it is a relationship with a real person who really suffered and is really alive to listen to you right now. Jesus came to experience our sorrow with us and to do something about it. And that brings us to the second point. Jesus' cry of abandonment shows that he is like us. The reason that Jesus became a human being, the reason that he endured pain and poverty and humiliation all the way to death on the cross is so that he could identify with you, so that he could experience deep compassion with you and for you in every way. And the question is, are you astonished? by that truth, or has it lost its luster to you? The Son of God, enthroned in glory and delight from all eternity, stepped down from heaven into a dirty major, an impoverished family, a flaky friend group, a judgmental religious context, an oppressive government, a painful life, and a forsaken death to be like you." to know you and to be with you in every possible situation and emotion. You can never go so low in this life that Jesus hasn't been there. There is no sorrow that you could feel that he hasn't felt deeply. Jesus knows what it feels like to be needy, to be hungry, to hurt. He knows what it's like to be tempted, to be mocked and derided. He's felt deep sadness. He's felt hot anger. He's felt shame. Over the last few months, because a, a, a lot of different friends that love me and a lot of different conversations that I've had, I've been challenged to be more vulnerable, to be more vulnerable with my emotion, which is like a great thing, except that I don't want to do that. Right? <laughs> it feels scary. Right? It feels really scary to me. It feels like self exposure. It feels difficult. I don't know where to look to learn how to be vulnerable until I look at Jesus on the cross. This is the most vulnerable moment in human history. Jesus hanging on the cross, totally exposed, totally alone, crying out, God, where are you? So he can handle any emotion that I could bring to him and it turns out that seeing him on the cross this way is the key to sharing my emotion and being vulnerable with others as well. He came into this world and he went to the cross so that he could be like us and be with us. The theologian Richard War says, Jesus' cry of abandonment from the cross is the ultimate expression of human suffering. It reminds us that even in our darkest moments, We are not alone, for God himself has experienced our pain. Now, we have to balance that truth with one caveat, okay? In one very important way, Jesus is not like us. And Hebrews 4.15 puts it most succinctly. Hebrews 4.15 says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. There is the likeness Jesus has been tempted like you, he has suffered like you, he knows what you feel and what you're going through. All right, but here comes the difference. As we are, yet without sin. Jesus is like us in every way except without sin. In this one crucial way, Jesus is unlike us. He faced everything that we faced, he felt everything that we feel, but he never sinned and that makes all the difference. This is the part that we don't wanna talk about, but it's the part that we need to talk about because this is where our salvation is found. Now, importantly, the Bible doesn't say that every individual instance of suffering in our lives is because of a specific sin that a person has committed, but it does say that the presence of sin and death in the world in general is because humanity is surrounded by and saturated in sin. And if God is going to do something about the problem of pain, he has to do something about the problem of evil. If he's going to defeat death, he first has to deal, defeat death, he first has to deal with sin. And that means he has to deal with my sin. Can you be honest enough to say with me, I have been a big part of the problem of evil in the world. I'm not just a victim, I'm also a villain. I've said words to friends. I've said words to family that have made them feel hurt and ashamed for days afterwards. In fits of rage, I've desired to humiliate people who crossed me and only the grace of God held me back from physical violence. I've used worldly position and religious performance to promote myself instead of serving and uplifting others. And worst of all, I've tried to assassinate God so that I can be God without God instead of worshiping God. And so praise God that in this regard, Jesus is unlike us. He lived a life completely free of selfishness, violence, and evil. He loved others and he honored God from beginning to end. And then he willingly laid that perfect life down on the cross in my place. We just sang together, behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Did you notice the centurion in the story that we just read? The centurion standing at the foot of the cross? Remember who that guy is. He's a professional soldier and really a professional executioner, which is to say that he has seen death. He has seen many, many people die. He has probably become numb to it by necessity. But verse 39 says that when he saw the way that Jesus died, he said truly this man was the son of God. And he said that because Jesus' death was unlike any other death in human history and he recognized it. People have long noted that Jesus' death here in all four of the gospels, Jesus' death doesn't look very good. Right? If you compare it to the dignified and brave way that the martyrs died throughout history jesus death doesn't look very good here many people many christians killed for their faith died with courageous defiant words on their lips but jesus dies with a question and a cry of agony and that's because his death was unlike any other death in human history jesus was the only person who ever lived who absolutely did not deserve to die he deserved life and love and praise forever. And yet, he's the only person to ever experience full forsakenness by God in this life. He's the only one for whom it is true that the Father turned his face away. And because his death was unlike any other in human history, we're saved in him. The centurion recognized it a good man, a truly righteous man who was forgiving his executioners as they nailed him to the cross, who was promising paradise to the thief dying next to him. That man cries out to God for deliverance, and his cry goes unanswered. The only answer he gets is darkness and death, and therein lies the key to our salvation. Righteous Jesus took the penalty of a sinner so that sinners could be right with God. The Son of God was treated like a criminal and a traitor. Did you notice, Jesus, this is the only place in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus addresses God directly and doesn't use the name Father. It's because he's being treated as a criminal so that we can be treated as sons and daughters, so that we can be adopted by his Father. He took death so that we could have resurrection and life. He was forsaken so that we could be forgiven and reconciled to God. So Jesus' cry of abandonment, his cry of forsakenness on the cross is God's promise that even in the moments of your darkest sin, even in the moments of your deepest pain, even in the moments when it feels like all hope is lost, God will never finally let you go. God's recurring promise throughout the Bible, I will never leave you or forsake you, is anchored and ensured by Jesus' cry of forsakenness on the cross. Lastly, Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our only hope. When you put all of this together, you see that there's no one else like Jesus. There's no hero like him. There's no hope apart from him. In life's most confusing questions, And worse suffering, Jesus doesn't stand at a distance and mumble cheap aphorisms. He cries out in pain with us. To the evil in the world and the sin in our hearts, he doesn't say clean yourself up, get your act together and come back and see me once you look better, once you've got it figured out. He cries into our sin and into our brokenness. He cries out in our place on the cross. And to the last enemy, death, the enemy that seemed undefeatable, he cries out in victory. When you hear Jesus cry on the cross, it will transform your life into a Psalm 22 life. Where even when you're in the midst of suffering, you can cry out to Jesus with honesty about your pain and also with hope. You can shout to him about your anguish and you can sing to him in worship, Jesus' cry on the cross, it turns mockers into worshipers, and that's the way that Psalm 22 ends. Now, if you're here tonight, you're hearing the cry of Jesus for you and to you for the first time, the most important thing that you can do is consider that cry, consider what it means for you, consider what it means to respond, but I think most of us in this room, we've heard this story before, and the danger is that we're hardened to it or we're cold towards it. And so I'm going to end by praying with us, or praying for us, and I'm going to read a poem called Good Friday by Christina Rossetti as part of my prayer. And this, Friday, this, this poem is her prayer for God to break our stony hearts and to help us to hear the cry of Jesus on the cross anew for us. Am I a stone and not a sheep, that I can stand, O Christ, beneath thy cross, to number drop by drop thy blood's slow loss, and yet not weep. Not so those women loved who with exceeding grief lamented thee, not so fallen Peter weeping bitterly, not so the thief was moved, not so the sun and moon which hid their faces in a starless sky, a horror of great darkness at broad noon. I, only I. Yet give not over, give us not over, Lord. But seek thy sheep, true shepherd of the flock, greater than Moses, turn and look once more, and smite a rock. Father, that's our prayer. That's our prayer that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would soften our hearts, that you would open our hearts anew to receive the good news of Jesus Christ on the cross. We call it Good Friday because it is good news that Jesus faced the agony, that Jesus faced the judgment, that Jesus cried out in our place and on our behalf. Lord, I pray that in the midst of suffering that you would help us to remember that Jesus knows our pain and our sorrow well. Help us to cry out to you like him, And I pray that in the midst of our sin that you would help us to remember that Jesus did everything necessary to forgive us and to reconcile us to you and help us to cry out for forgiveness and a renewed understanding of your grace. Lord, and I pray that when we would be tempted to mock, Lord, that we would be tempted to ignore, that you would help us to cry out and worship Jesus as our great worship leader. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.